Hello and welcome back to another episode of How To with the Communications Clinic. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Powell to discuss how to negotiate. Jonathan is a diplomat, former chief of staff to Tony Blair and founder and CEO of Intermediate, a charity dedicated to ending conflict through negotiation and mediation. Negotiation is a key element of communication, whether it's in the workplace, with a loved one, or in Jonathan's case, with events like the Good Friday Agreement negotiations. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. There's a lot we want to discuss with you and um, particularly you played a key role in the Good Friday Agreement and the considerable negotiations that an agreement of that scale would require um, is the very real reason we want to speak to you about how to negotiate. So let's go to a scenario. You're about to talk to a member of the IRA or a loyalist paramilitary. Where do you start? Well, you have to start with them wanting to talk to you. And the the tragedy is that often takes a long time. Uh, People often try to do things through force or through demonstrations or whatever it might be, and only in the end come to talk. And governments are just as bad about that as, as armed groups. And usually what brings it about in my line of work is when people get to what they call a mutually hurting stalemate. It's only when people realize that by force, they're not going to achieve their aims. They, they may not be defeated, but they're not going to defeat the other side. And it's at that stage that you get people ready to talk. So I think, for example, in the case of Northern Ireland, the British Army had realized by about uh, the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, that they could contain the IRA forever, but they were not going to defeat them um, uh, by military force. And I think by the middle of the 1980s, uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness realized they weren't going to be defeated, but they couldn't actually get their way by force. And that's when they reached out to John Hume and then to the Irish government and finally to the British government. So really, when you meet someone and you want to talk to them, they first of all have to want to talk to you. And that's usually the circumstances of the conflict you're involved in. And how important then, once you've persuaded somebody to enter negotiations with you, how important is it for you to plan that negotiation? You really need to start with a proper plan. What I find about people is they tend to, if they're going into a political campaign, they plan. If they're going into a business negotiation or a business um, deal, they'll plan. Uh, if they're going into a military campaign, they'll plan. And for negotiations too often, people just turn up and think it will be all right on the day. So you need to have a clear strategy when you go into negotiation. What are you trying to achieve? And of course, like all strategies, that will change once you meet contact with the other side. You're going to change your strategy. But having a plan is absolutely essential. And the second thing is I think people are too inclined to rush into trying to get to the final result rather than actually spending time building a proper architecture for negotiations, a proper process. One thing I discovered in Northern Ireland, when I look back through the files, I was allowed to go back and go through the 10 years of files that we had uh, in government of trying to deal with Northern Ireland. The thing that struck me most of all was the importance of process. When there was no process, um, there was no hope and you tended to get violence because it was a vacuum. When there's a process, people hope and you can make progress. So having a process, having a clear process and clear rules is absolutely clear. In, in, in Colombia, where I worked with President Santos for eight years, we decided very deliberately to have proper firm foundations for the negotiations. We um, took the FARC, the, the guerrillas, out of the jungle to Havana secretly and for six months uh, negotiated with them secretly. 
And all of that time was not talking about the substance. It was talking only about how are we going to do this negotiation? Will you talk about giving up your weapons? Will you talk about justice? And only when we concluded that, those six months, did we then enter into the negotiations. And having those firm foundations, I think, was absolutely crucial to success. And so if you're entering a negotiation then to plan and to have a process in mind, what, what does that look like? What, what should you arm yourself with to get the best possible result out of the interaction? Well, that's what's happening now, for example, in Afghanistan with the talks of the Taliban that we're working on, the Taliban and the Afghan government. And you need to have a number of things in place. First of all, you have to have um, uh, rules of procedure. How are these negotiations going to work? You don't want to have people refusing to turn up to the meeting or making an issue about some trivial matter. You need all of that agreed. For example, one rule you have to have in these sort of negotiations is nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So it's absolutely crucial to have those sort of things in place. Secondly, you need a very clear agenda and a very clear time frame. Um, and then thirdly, you need to have in mind what it is you're going to try and achieve in this first stage, first stage of negotiations. Are you going to try and get to a framework agreement or go the whole way to a final agreement? So you need to have drawn out in your own mind a sort of set of steps and where they're going to lead. So in terms of the negotiation itself, then, uh, one of our founders, Tom Savage, he, he also wrote a book about negotiating. And he said that it's very important to look for interest as opposed to taking stances. Very often a negotiation is seen as opposed to a conversation as a competition. Does there always have to be a loser or why do we think that there does? It's very interesting. I was always very sceptical about the theory of negotiation. You know, I started uh, learning about negotiation as a practical matter. I was a British diplomat for 16 years. I worked on the Hong Kong negotiations to give Hong Kong back to China in the early 1980s, German unification negotiations. And I thought, I got nothing to learn from academics. But I've discovered since I left government and set up uh, the charity I run, which works on conflict negotiations, the value of the theory of negotiation. And we work very closely indeed with Professor William Uri from Harvard, who wrote a famous book called Getting to Yes about negotiations to set up the Harvard Negotiation Project. And I now believe that actually the, the theory is every bit as important as the practice. And that's what we use in, in what we do. And as you say, being clear from the beginning what people's interests are, not what they're asking for. So, for example, in the negotiations in Doha with the Taliban at the moment, they're asking for something. And I need to work out what the interests are. It's not what they're saying they want. Is what is it that they actually want? So, for example, in the beginning of the negotiations in Northern Ireland, the IRA position, the Sinn Féin position was they wanted Brits out. When they realised that that was just a slogan, then we had to find out what did they want. And of course, they wanted power sharing, they wanted north-south bodies, they wanted human rights protections, they wanted the Irish language. So you need to dig in behind what people are saying and find out what it is they really want. Because there are many ways of satisfying an interest, but only one way of satisfying a position. And usually, if you can see what the interests are, you can find a way that doesn't hurt your position that can help you to uh, to meet that concern. As you say, just you said also about the, the issue of how important it is not having winners and losers. That really is an important issue because um, I don't think people fully understand that. I think in Northern Ireland, it was when Gerry Adams realised about 2004, 2005, it wasn't a matter about him winning the negotiations. He would tend to come out of nearly every negotiation we had during that period looking as if he'd won and only then did he realize he had to carry the unionists with him not just his own people and that's when he started reaching out to the unionists and succeeded in nigeria where there was a most awful war in biafra back in the 60s the nigerian government completely won that war but when they uh, ended the war they put posters all over the country saying no winners 
and no losers. Because if you're going to conclude the agreement and not have it reopened, you need to be clear. No one has won. No one has lost. This is the two sides coming together. Okay. And then in terms of deciding on their stance and understanding their interests, but also figuring out what yours are, is it important to set an anchor and to know how far you'll go or how much you'll give? Yep. When we sit down with people trying to work out how to negotiate uh, a conflict, someone like President Santos, for example, in Colombia, we'll sit down for really quite a long period of time, drawing up the strategy, but also drawing up the red lines. You know, what would we like to get, but what can we absolutely not go beyond? And you need to have those very clearly in your mind, because otherwise you may find yourself being dragged into something you simply can't sell at home. You can't go back and say to the people, this is what we've agreed. And a good example of that is transitional justice. You know, there had to be in Colombia for the first time for a negotiation with an armed group. There had to be some justice. People were not going to accept uh, just being an amnesty. People could just go free, which had always been the case in the past, not least because they were part of the International Criminal Court. And the ICC would have prosecuted both the soldiers and the guerrillas unless there was an agreement on that. But you weren't going to get the guerrillas to agree to go um, to jail. If you go to the leaders of the FARC and say, let's negotiate, but you're going to have to go to jail for 30 years. For some reason, they wouldn't be very interested. So what you have to do is be clear. What do you have to get on justice? Uh, otherwise, it's not going to be an agreement. Don't go too far, because if you do, you're going to push the other people out of the agreement. So you need to be clear about those red lines. How important then is silence in, in a negotiation? It's more than silence. I would call it patience. People get panicked. If there's no progress being made in a negotiation, they tend to get very nervous and they know that their bosses are going to be saying to them, why have we not agreed this? And that makes tends to force them into unrequited concessions. They start saying, well, how about this? How about that? How about the other? And you don't want to do that. You want to be calm and clear. So as long as you're clear what your bottom line is, you're clear what the other side's interests are, you stick to your position, you keep going, you keep going, and eventually uh, you're going to find some common ground, unless there really is no common ground, in which case you need to think about what the academics call a BATNA, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And it's important to be clear about what your BATNA is. In other words, if there's no agreement, what happens to me? You know, Are we going to have to carry on fighting or is there some other way out of this? And you want to think about the BATNA of the other side. How do you make their BATNA worse so they're going to want to succeed in the negotiations? And how do you make yours better so you have a better chance of walking away? And in your opinion, then, and the very many negotiations you have been privy to, what are the key mistakes that people make either before or during a negotiation? One of the worst mistakes before a negotiation I've seen, and it's repeated again and again, is people set preconditions. They, they go into the negotiation and they say, I'm not going to participate in this negotiation unless you agree to this or that. In the case of Northern Ireland, it was uh, decommissioning of weapons. John Major, uh, I understand why, said he wouldn't negotiate with Sinn Féin unless the IRA decommissioned its weapons. He did that because they wouldn't say it was a permanent ceasefire and he didn't want to look as if he was negotiating under the threat of violence. But it was a mistake because he simply got trapped. The IRA said, no, we're not giving up our weapons. So then he had to fall back and say, well, they need to give up most of their weapons. And they said, no. So he said, well, they have to give up a token amount of their weapons. And they still said no. So he was left in an impossible position. So unless you actually don't want the negotiations to happen, on the whole, don't set preconditions, because if you do, you'll just never get into the negotiations. Putting this all into a business context then, how does somebody negotiate with somebody who has more power than them, like an employee seeking a pay rise with the big boss? Well, you need to know what the uh, uh, balance of power is between you and the other person negotiating. To give an example, not from business, but I think this is relevant to business, when my first experience in negotiating was... 
uh, as the desk office and the foreign office when we negotiated with the Chinese about Hong Kong. And the problem there was that uh, China had all the cards. You know, the lease ran out on Hong Kong and we couldn't, uh, on the new territories, and we couldn't hang on to the island of Hong Kong without the new territories, so we needed the Chinese blessing. And we tried and we tried to negotiate. We asked if they would let us keep sovereignty, and they said no. We asked if they let us keep administration, and they said no. And so what we did was we did what we call a finesse. We, we sort of used conditionality. We said, well, what would you do if we gave you back sovereignty? What would you do if we gave you back administration? What, would you, what rights would you guarantee? What really worked in the end, what balanced up our power balance was Deng Xiaoping, who was the leader of China at the time, set a t- deadline. He said, this has to be done in two years, two years from his meeting from Mrs. with Mrs. Thatcher. And we hadn't agreed to any such deadline. So as we got to the end of these two years, the Chinese officials were really scared because they were worried uh, they'd lose their jobs if they didn't deliver an agreement by the end of two years. And we just said, well, it's up to you. And that was really where we got all of our concessions. Any of the references to democracy are in that, those last six weeks where we set up working groups and negotiated the detail of the agreement. So when you're in a weaker position, you need to be aware of it, but you need to think of it like jujitsu. How do you turn your weakness into a strength by using the weight of the other side? Okay. And, and then how do you know when to walk away? You know, if you're not getting anywhere, how do you know when to pull back and how do you manage that situation? My general rule in negotiations is don't walk away if you can possibly avoid it. I could think of it as the bicycle theory that once you've got the bicycle moving, you don't want it to fall over. Because if you do, you find it really difficult to pick it up again and, and get it moving. So in Northern Ireland, quite often we came to a real close to a break point. I'll give you one example that in, 80, in, sorry, in, in, um, in 2004... Uh, we had been negotiating between Ian Paisley and Sinn Féin and we failed to get to an agreement. And the whole process looked like it was in collapse. Even the Irish government no longer wanted to go on meeting with Sinn Féin. And I flew over to Belfast to meet with Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness in a monastery in, West, in the Clonard Monastery in West Belfast. And I, um, when I got off the plane, a Northern Irish official met me and he had me driven for about half a mile, stopped the car, got out and said, the biggest bank robbery in world history happened last night and the dogs on the street know it was the IRA that did it. And I was furious because I was out on a limb. No one thought I should be there meeting with Sinn Féin. Uh, I thought about going back and I thought, no, no, we've got to keep this bicycle moving. However much it hurts, I have to go in there and I have to go meet with them. So I went to the monastery, I met with them. I couldn't even tell them about the robbery because the police hadn't announced it yet. So I was seething, but it was the right thing to do because we kept that bicycle moving along. So on the whole, you don't want to walk away from the table, but you have to be ready to walk away from the table. In the Colombian negotiations, in the secret phase I talked about in Havana, those six months, the crucial thing was to get the FARC to agree that, the, um, that their weapons would be on the table. They'd be prepared to negotiate giving up their weapons. They'd never done that before. And they were just refusing to do it. So the chief Colombian negotiator said, well, okay, then we're going to get the helicopters ready and we're going to have the ICRC fly you back into the jungle and we're going back to Colombia. They packed their bags, they put their bags by the aeroplane, the FARC had a meeting, they changed their minds and came back and said, okay, we'll agree to refer to our weapons. So sometimes you have to be prepared to walk out to get the point you need, but if at all possible, don't walk out because then it's so much harder to pick the negotiations up again. And going back to the Good Friday Agreement, you know, how lengthy that was and Bertie Hearn was quite famed for consistently going at it and keeping at it. And uh, that requires energy. Um, How do you keep focused and positive during a a negotiation when things like the situation you just described happen? 
Um, well, Bertie was an extraordinary negotiator, both in trade union matters and political matters in Ireland, but also in those negotiations. We'd never have achieved peace in Northern Ireland if it hadn't been for Bertie. And I think the main thing is to uh, to be resilient, to to be um, patient. And there's, a, there's a, again, a trick the academics talk about, uh, which is relevant to business too, which is to go on the balcony. Sometimes you just get your head too into the negotiations. You're too focused on the details. You're too emotional about it. And if you get to that state, what you've got to do is say, OK, I'm just stopping for the today. I'm going to go be on the balcony, try and look at this from above, try and see the big picture. Where can I move elsewhere in this negotiation that might solve the problem? What if I um, enlarge the picture so we're not just talking about these small issues? What if I throw something else into this negotiation that makes it possible to achieve? So the key thing is the ability to keep that perspective, to go away, think about the big picture, think about what else you can do, uh, not just keep knocking your head against the brick wall. What was the moment where you knew it was going to happen, the Good Friday Agreement after 800 years? You knew we were going to come to a resolution. Who was in the room? Um, well, it was it was uh, late at night or early in the morning, depending on which way you look at it. We hadn't had sleep for three nights. We were in the awful building, Castle Buildings on Stormont Estate. And when I finally knew it was going to work, I think was... Um, once I, uh, we, took, we produced a side letter for uh, David Trimble on what would happen on weapons. And I typed it up on my laptop, um, dictated by a Northern Ireland official with Tony Blair there and I guess Alistair Campbell, John Holmes. Uh, and I rushed down to the office where all the unionists uh, were, they were all meeting. I couldn't get in because the door was locked. I banged on the door and they still refused to open it. So eventually I stuck a note underneath. They let me in and I went up to David Trimble, who was with... Uh, some of his colleagues on the um, on the podium, and I showed him the letter. He read it through. Uh, John Taylor, it was, sitting next to him and said, yep, we can accept that. And so immediately I rushed back up and I knew that's when we got it. But I didn't know it until then, which was about, I think, about five or six o'clock on the morning of Good Friday. That was when it, because it was in the balance all the way through. We could have lost it at any moment. That's incredible. Um, do you, t- I'm sorry to ask you this question right afterwards then, has there been a point in your career where you feel like you failed in a negotiation? And if there has been, what have you learned from that? Um, no, well, I've often failed. I run this charity where we work in 15 different negotiations around the world and they're often very, very frustrating. And the main thing I take away from them is that you may have failed once, but you're not failing for good, if you see what I mean. In Northern Ireland, we had a series of failures in negotiations. We had Sunningdale in 1973, Anglo-Irish Agreement in 85, Downing Street Declaration in 1993. All of them failed. But the Good Friday Agreement didn't come from nowhere. It was built on the failure of those negotiations. In fact, Seamus Mallon, if you remember at the time, called it Sunningdale for Slow Learners. And that's the point. In in Columbia, it was the same thing. There were four failures before they got to success. So if you fail at a negotiation, don't think you've failed altogether. Just think, how am I going to come back to this? It's going to take some time before I can come back. But let's try and learn the lessons from why we failed. Did we ask too much? Did we not set good enough conditions? Uh, what was it that we did wrong? Obviously, in, in the Anglo-Irish agreement, it was excluding the parties in Northern Ireland. Sunningdale, it was probably excluding Sinn Féin. Uh, those are the sort of reasons that are why, why these things fail. You need to draw those lessons. So when you start a negotiation, look back at why you failed last time. Try and draw the lessons from that and apply them to your next set of negotiations. And do you always see the possibility for negotiation? If we take, for example, the situation in France currently with Emmanuel Macron and the extreme Islamists, their identity is so tied up in their beliefs, as is often the case with religion. When that is the case, how do you persuade somebody to differ? 
Well, I think Republicans had their beliefs wrapped up in uh, in their identity as well. It, it happens a, a lot. Uh, and we negotiate with a number of Islamist groups around the world. Um, I don't think, I mean, religion makes a difference, but it isn't that much different from nationalist um, guerrillas of the old days or, or indeed the, the left guerrillas of the old days. There are still uh, ways you can start a, a discussion. Now, there are some cases where politically you don't need to negotiate. If you take the Bader-Meinhof group or Brigati Rossi in Italy, those were very small groups that had very little political support, so you didn't need to negotiate. But where there is genuine political support for a group, uh, and you know, in places like um, the Sahel, uh, there is political support for those groups. In places like Iraq and Syria, there is support for those groups. Then you're going to have to find a political solution. So I think in those cases, it's always worth talking to these groups. It's almost worth trying to turn that into a negotiation. You may not succeed, but at least trying, you learn more about them and more about what's driving them. And that in itself is a game. And where there is a relationship and that has developed into disdain or even hatred, where do you begin with that then, just making those approaches? Yeah, you have to, mostly people just feel they haven't been listened to. They feel for decades no one's listened to what they have to say. No one's shown them any respect. Uh, And so there may be blood on both sides and a lot of blood on both sides, but you have to overcome that. I remember in... uh, I think it was about 2004, 2005, I had to get um, uh, Peter Sheridan, the deputy head of the uh, PSNI, the police in Northern Ireland, to come to Downing Street to meet Martin McGuinness and other Republican leaders to talk about security. And for him, this was very difficult. The house he had lived in, he'd been chased out of three times in Derry by the IRA, whose leader was Martin McGuinness. Twice the car he was in had been blown up and everyone else killed by the IRA, and he'd survived. And I had to bring him in and he was a big man. He, he shook hands with Martin McGuinness. He really, uh, he was able to overcome that hatred and over, able to um, turn it into a working relationship. And you have to find leaders who are prepared and able to do that. Let's talk about mediation then and your, your organisation Intermediate. You deal with the most complex and, and difficult conflicts. Tell me about the key difference between mediation and negotiation. In a negotiation, you have two or more sides who are trying to get somewhere. And sometimes it helps to have a third side, to have people who don't have skin in the game, who can try and uh, reduce the temper, uh, keep people honest in the room. Like, you know, if you have a football game, you wouldn't really do it without a referee. You want an independent referee who's going to set the rules, make sure the rules are obeyed, make sure people do what they're promised to do. So that's why you want to have someone in the centre. Now, there are different roles people can play in the centre. You can have an arbitrator who just decides this is the outcome. You can have a mediator who's quite forceful and tries to bring the two sides together, puts forward compromised proposals. You can have a slightly weaker role of a facilitator who helps the meetings happen but doesn't intervene too much. And in Colombia, for example, we had uh, witnesses, Norway and um, Cuba, were the witnesses. They weren't able to facilitate or mediate. They weren't able to speak in the negotiations, but they were there to initial documents when they were agreed and keep people honest. So having that third side can be very helpful in a negotiation, although increasingly, I have to say, governments and even armed groups are not so willing to have mediators. They worry they lose control of the negotiation in those circumstances. They want to remain in control. So increasingly, we're having to look at imaginative ways of facilitating. So instead of just sitting there in the room, Maybe you talk to the advisors to one side, talk to the advisors to the other side and try and find a solution in that way. So it is better to have a third side, but it doesn't always work nowadays. And in in terms of uh, 
you know, on a, a more personal level and in a business level, judges are, mediation is now very often being proposed by judges as an, an extra step before something ends up in court. Um, how do you feel about that insertion of that extra step? I think it's a very, very good thing. I mean, not just as it saves lots of money uh, of lawyers' fees and going to court and court time, but also is a better way to avoid hard feelings. And I think most businessmen who've been through this, you can either go to arbitration or you can go to mediation. And it's the same, of course, in family law. You know, divorce is now mainly done by mediation rather than by going to court. And I think it's a much more sensible way to approach these things. And I think the businessmen would be well advised to think of mediation themselves first rather than waiting for the judge to tell them that. And tell me about in your position then and, and the work you do on a daily basis. Is it always possible to be impartial? It's necessary not to bring a third agenda to the table. If you're going to try and help mediate something, you don't want to turn up and say, well, actually, this is how I think it should be done, because then you're complicating the negotiations, not simplifying them. So that you don't want to do. But that doesn't mean to say sometimes when I talk to people, they say, well, so you don't care about human rights. You don't care about um, uh, protecting women's rights. Of course I do. And I don't think an agreement is going to work if you end up with an authoritarian government that doesn't respect human rights. And I don't want to be part of a negotiation that doesn't lead to an outcome that's going to work. So, yes, you have your values, you have your understandings of what will work, but you don't turn up and tell them what to do. If you're trying to mediate or facilitate, you're trying to help two sides that have already got enough difficulties come to an agreement. Let's talk then about Brexit. How could the EU and Britain negotiate better in in, in this situation? <laughs> well, they shouldn't have started from here is the, the basic answer to that question. They got themselves into a, a real mess, and, and almost entirely from the British government's point of view. The whole way along, they've played played this wrong. I mean, it started with the point that I tried to make clear, Tony Blair and John Major tried to make clear, that there was a big Northern Ireland problem in this negotiation. If we were going to leave the single market and the customs union, we were creating a problem. And they went into negotiation without ever addressing how to deal with that problem. To be fair to, fair to Theresa May, she tried to later, when she did understand the problem, come up with a very complex way of resolving it. But Boris Johnson just came into it and said it would be solved by technology, which was nonsense. Uh, then he had to, uh, then he demanded there be no, that um, uh, the, the, essentially the, the beer border between Northern Ireland and, and the Republic. And when he realised that wasn't possible, he reversed course and just completely accepted the EU position, which then landed him in a real mess with the Unionists, because then there was a border between Northern Ireland and, uh, and the rest of the United Kingdom. And that's why he's, one of the reasons he's tried to reopen it in legislation in the UK. So to enter a negotiation when you're not really serious about a properly thought through position is very dangerous and you end up in a real mess. And I think what Boris Johnson did last year and what he looks as if he's repeating now is a lot of posturing, a lot of tough talk, a lot of I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, uh, we're going to break the old agreement because he wants to be able to present what he will agree to, which will be a very, I fear, very weak agreement and much less good agreement than he could have got. Uh, to his people as a triumph, but it's all come about because he's been so tough. I think that's what he's trying to achieve. He may fail, he may by mistake end up with no agreement, but that's what he's trying to achieve. And that is a very poor way to negotiate. And and some writers have suggested that the Remainers started from their own beliefs without ever considering, you know, the beliefs of the Brexiteers. Do you think that's the case? I, I, I do think, uh, yeah, this has been a very divisive issue in, in Britain. We We... You know, families are divided, regions are divided, and it's only beginning to, 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 to die down that, uh, that, that scar between people. And I think it's true that Remainers, like me, have not been sufficiently um, generous in thinking through 
why Brexiteers wanted this, how their, their, their wishes could be met. But mainly, I'd have to say, the Brexiteers themselves have changed course. When they were campaigning for the, in the referendum for Brexit, they said we'd be like Norway. We'd stay basically in, but would leave to give ourselves some freedom. And it's become more and more extreme as we've been on from them. So now we've got to the stage where some of them say they'd actually rather have no agreement with our big neighbour, which would be catastrophic for relations with Ireland, but also for our business. So I think there's been an escalation during the course of this negotiation on the Brexiteer side to, unless you get absolutely everything, that's not good enough. And that sort of extremism is, A, a very bad way to approach a negotiation, but B, doesn't help heal the wounds that exist here in Britain. And what do you think the outcome will be? As I say, I think Boris Johnson will in the end collapse as he did last year and will agree to more or less what the EU wants in terms of a, a level playing field. There'll be some sort of, you know, um, halfway point on fisheries. Uh, so I think you'll get an agreement. But the trouble is it will be an agreement that does not have um, free access for our goods and where uh, peoples will be divided. And it'll be very, very messy, I guess. There'll almost certainly have to be some sort of transitional period after the end of the year, because I can't see how it can be expected to work. I mean, he'll call it something else other than a transitional uh, period. But if he doesn't have something, it's going to be really difficult in Kent, for example, and not to mention in Northern Ireland uh, from the end of the year. But that's where I guess it will end up. It is still possible that they miscalculate and we end up with no agreement. And that would be really very serious, particularly if they mean what they say when they say they won't go back to the EU and seek a new agreement if they fail to get it by the end of the year. Because then we'd have to wait for a change of government to be able to negotiate a free trade agreement with Europe. Uh, Now, of course, Boris Johnson may not last all that long, given the way he's handled coronavirus. So maybe a new Tory prime minister would be more amenable. But that is a worrying prospect. Absolutely. So before I let you go, then, if somebody is entering a negotiation, what is the key advice you would give them to prepare themselves? Have a plan, have a strategy, think it through, be calm and always take a time to go to the balcony to stand back and think, what is it that I need to think about here? And think about some of these devices that academics are sort of put in our minds, things like the Spatner I talked about, the best alternatives to a negotiated agreement. Think about it in those sort of analytical terms. It will help you rather than just getting emotional and cross because the other side won't agree to what you want. So always be cool, always be patient, try not to be emotional in it, but have a plan. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back with another how-to very soon.